Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hey, what's happening, Archons? Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. I'm your pal, Scuzzy Gruen, also known as Alex. I am joined this week, as always, by my pal. It's Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Coach? Hey, man. How is it going? Oh, pretty good, pretty good. Blake, I'm super excited for our topic this week because it's the kind of thing that I feel like we should have done ages ago and yet never occurred to us. And so being able to dig in on it is is really big for me. Um, what we're going to be talking about, folks, is good creatures and bad creatures and me and Blake's ideas about what makes a creature good and what makes a creature bad. So... I guess kind of just to start setting the table here, one of the things that I think Blake and I discussed before the show and that we really want to get across is the idea that we are looking at these basically in a vacuum. We accept the fact that a creature that may be terrible, you know, in a vacuum is actually maybe good in some decks or good in some uh, play states and vice versa. You know, sometimes a creature that's really, really excellent in a vacuum is terrible and you don't want to put it down on the board depending on game state or perhaps even the deck that you're in. We are just going to be talking about what makes a creature good purely in a vacuum uh, because we think that there's a lot that you can actually garner information-wise from just looking at the card, reading the card, and thinking about the way Keyforge works as a game. The other thing that I want to get across, Blake, um, and, you know, we can have a little bit of discussion about this, is I think that there's actually fewer great and terrible creatures than there are just middle-of-the-road, okay creatures at this stage in the game. Would you agree or disagree with that statement? I'd for sure agree, and I, I think Mass Mutation uh, really kind of heaped on that thought quite a bit with this set. Yeah, yeah. I just feel like, you know, there's so many creatures where I'm like, yeah, this is fine, but it's not setting my world on fire like some of the creatures in Coda. Um, but I mean, the other upshot of that is it's not making me feel like, man, what a waste like so many of the creatures did, say, in the AOA era. Or, you mm -hmm. know, Brobnar in Worlds Collide, which is going to come up, I'm going to warn you, an awful lot when we're talking about certain kinds of creatures that uh, maybe don't, aren't, uh, don't live up to our expectations. But uh, we can get there when we get there. Blake, are you ready to go? Yeah, let's do it, man. All right, let's do it. Let's start off with the good stuff. What makes a creature a good creature? We kind of got this broken down by category. Come up with some examples, I think, uh, for each of these categories that we're going to be talking about a little bit. One of the things that I think uh, is absolutely your absolute best creatures in the game, the ones that are real game changers, the ones that are real game winners, is that they are either a must-answer card on the table or they have a high-value constant ability. So let's break it down by must answer. Let's talk about things like from Coda, like Ember Imp or Restring Guntus. Ember Imp basically says you can only play two cards out of your hand. Your opponent can only play two cards out of their hand. They must answer that because it is impossible or nearly impossible to win the game under those circumstances. Restring Guntus, you can't play one of your houses. That can severely cripple most any deck being stuck unless the person makes a really bad call when they play Restring Guntus, and chances are they're not going to make that bad call most of the time. Um, it, I mean, it's true, man. The fact that there is a term called the Guntus Lock means that it is a real thing because there wouldn't be a term like that with abbreviated version of its name where you lose the game once that happens. Mm -hmm, totally. Uh, uh, talking about things like AOA, the Dusk Witch, 
power that is so good that you have to answer it because it will immediately start to give your opponent value turn over turn unless you take it off the table. Uh, I even include things like E on the fringes because there's a possibility for such big steel swings. Um, Compost Hera specs in Worlds Collide as well, I feel like is a must answer threat. And the reason that it's a must answer threat is the fact that it provides your opponent with such tremendous value on their table. Even into Mass Mutation, we're seeing cards like Master of the Grey. And Master of the Grey is, once again, just that must, must, must answer threat because it impedes your ability to win. If your opponent puts that card down, you cannot afford to ignore it. Yeah, I would I would actually put uh, Primus Unagus in that one because, or Unguis, however you pronounce it, because that one is, if you don't kill that quick and it starts getting the Ember thing going, like it becomes not only a challenge to deal with the board, but it just becomes a mathematical error waiting to happen with tallying things up. So it is like, there's games where I've seen like, oh, it's over. Like you you need a board wipe now or you are done. Yeah, and I mean, uh, uh, a must-answer card can even be one like, say, a Witch of the Eye is a tremendous example of a must-answer card because it is essentially saying that anytime I call Untamed, I'm going to get to reuse my best Untamed card that I've already played. I'm going to get value out of it that turn if the Witch is allowed to live. There's a reason why we used to say, like, Hunting Witch gotta die, Witch of the Eye gotta die. Basically, any Untamed Witch from Coda was a must-kill threat because they all had abilities like that. They were so yeah, powerful true. in that way. But, you know, not only that, we're not just talking about high-value creatures because they uh, are must-answer. We're talking about the ones that provide high value in a constant ability. It blows my mind, Blake, how often people let mother and daughter live in a game of Keyforge when we know for a fact that one of the best things that you can do is cycle your deck as fast as possible, get to those value cards you've already played from your discard back into your draw pile, and every single time that you have a, a mother or a daughter living on the table, you're allowing your opponent to have that advantage over you. They've got more cards to draw from, and they're cycling their deck faster. Yeah, it's, it's very true. Um, you know, you can extend that over to things like Amber Spine Mongrel, I think, Candle Unit, um, you know, those cards that just, if they're sitting on the table, they're basically saying, if you don't deal with me, then your opponent is getting tremendous value out of them based on your actions. In Amber Spine Mongrel, you're getting Amber every time somebody reaps. In Candle Unit's uh, case, you're getting to draw a card every time somebody reaps. So, you know, it's it's very much one of those things where you cannot suffer them to live. I love Ember Spine Mongrel. It's it's actually one of my favorite untamed cards from the AOA era, and I was super happy it came back in Mass Mutation, although it does feel very rare in Mass Mutation, at least for my opening so far. I've like pulled a few decks with Amber Spine Mongrel and yeah, like people I think are, have wised up to it. Whereas back in the day, I think people let it live a little bit more and now they're like, no, I got to take it off the table. It's just the thing there. It has hazardous as well. So it makes it really difficult yeah. to get rid of via fighting. Um, it, it is just one of those ones that it really does make you have to deal with it. Um, and oftentimes the way you have to deal with it is just targeted removal because that uh, hazardous can be hard to get past. Yeah, indeed. Um, one of the things that I wanted to say with regards to this is uh, I genuinely feel like we're seeing fewer and fewer must answer creatures as time goes by 
which is weird because we're now at a point um, in mass mutation where I feel like we have better removal tools than we've had at many other times in more houses. I mean, we've always had some pretty decent removal. Life for a life's been out there for ages. You know, uh, there's been, you know, full on board clears and things like that. But now we're dealing with uh, sets that have things like cyber clone and stuff like in them that are just these very perfect targeted removal for must kill creatures. And yet we're not seeing tons of must kill creatures come in with the new sets uh, oftentimes i feel like those new tools that we have are just for dealing with old must kill creatures like when i sat down to do this i was going through each of them set by set trying to really identify what the must kills were and i had a hard time finding must kills in uh mass mutation when i was looking through them honestly the one that i came up with is master of the gray mm, yeah i would agree I mean, in terms of like actually new cards, because obviously there's cards from previous sets that have existed before, but but I think you're talking about like actually new cards that we haven't seen mm. before, correct? Exactly. You got it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. Um, obviously, the sins fall in that category because of the nature of what they, they create just being sins and having the synergy amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think you're you're very right with that. There There isn't as many. I think Coda had the most in terms of like, little things that did really powerful things and then it became more specialized in worlds collide in more like a saurian and star alliance capacity and i feel that's almost like i think we've said this before but it has to do with i think it's a new house so the interactions and the impact they have haven't been fully like seen in the wild once you see it you're like oh because i think we can agree that both saurian and star alliance did get quite a neuter into mass mutations from mm -hmm. worlds collide yeah, I mean, I ultimately feel like even though I complained a lot and longtime listeners of the podcast will know this, I complained a lot about the dinos when they first came out because I felt they were way OP and there's lots of dino decks that were annoying to play against and that you just felt like, well, why am I even bothering? If you can capture all my amber and then take it all into your pool, you know with a three card combination or even a two card combination why am i even bothering i kind of feel like they made the right decision in making those two houses so great off the bat because it really did establish them within the game and then you know they geared them down for the next set but they were already part of the ecosphere right like now starlights yeah. and dinos are just part of the game yeah um, moving on a little bit away from just a must answer or a high value constant ability type cards Let's talk a little bit about cards that provide value with the turn they are played. Now, sometimes this is super obvious. A card just has a great playability. We're talking about something like, uh, you know, Ronnie Wrist Clocks. He is the preeminent example. You play him, he's going to steal an amber. Uh, if your opponent has more than seven, he's going to steal two ambers. Perfect. Nobody's ever unhappy to see Ronnie. And the great thing about a card with a, a playability like Ronnie is that you can recur him. Maybe he gets killed and then you bring him back using something like uh, um, an exhume. exhume. Or, yeah. you know, you have another way of getting him back to your hand. Or your deck cycles and he comes up again. That's totally a thing that can happen. We're also talking about things like Chota Hazri, the ability to key cheat on a creature. You know, one of the rare examples that we've seen of that. Skippy Time Hog, who impedes your opponent's following turn. Um, Time Traveler, who gets you an amber and lets you pull two cards. So good. No uh, Rick's loving that one right now. Yeah. Glimmer, who lets you basically pick a card out of your discard and bring it back to your hand. And you can recur Glimmer with the old Glimlock thing, right? Like you use that to bring Nature's Call and then, you know, use it over and over again to do it that way. Uh, Infernus, probably one of the best examples of a card that debuted relatively recently in the grand scheme of things only Huge one impact. set ago 
but just at this point, Infernus is a staple in Dis, and it's still an incredibly good card and one of the best Dis creatures that has ever been printed. Because I would agree, value- because it's not only doing Ember Control, it's providing disruption. So you're getting like an, a core aspect of Dis while at the same time getting Ember Control. So I think it is such a fantastic card. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these are these are just examples that I'm, I pulled off. Um, but basically, almost anything with a playability is probably verging on good um you'll get a couple where it's just like oh when you play this put a plus one counter on another creature or something like that and that's like well whatever that's pretty vanilla it's not super interesting it doesn't do a whole lot um and sometimes they're just outright bad uh for various reasons we'll get to that when we talk about the bad stuff but playabilities continue to be i think one of the absolute highest values that you can get out of a creature if a creature has a good even like mildly good playability, you're going to get it off. You don't have to wait a turn. It's going to do something for you the moment you play it. Okay, so here's my question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you think that having, let's say the ability is exactly the same, so we can almost use like um, like Kirby as an example because it has a play reap ability, the double. But let's say you only got one choice. Do you think it's better to have the playability so you get to play and it happens right away or reapability so you can keep doing it over and over again. Which do you think has more value in your opinion? Playabilities. Um, and I'll give you my rationale, Blake. Um, reapabilities, oftentimes, you're absolutely correct. Maybe you get to get the power off not just once, but twice or three times. But also maybe you get to get it to go off zero times. Mm-hmm. So you drop the creature with the reapability and then your opponent has a whole turn in which they can respond to that. Yeah. Um, they might even hit a board clear or you might get yeah. to use it once the following turn and then a board clear happens or then a fight that takes it out happens. I'm always a bird in the hand guy, Blake. I want yeah, that's what to I was be thinking. able to get that value out of it. And if the creature doesn't live, I don't care because I already got my steel off of my Ronnie or I already cheated my key with my Chota Hazri. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you on that. A bird in the hand is definitely worth two in the bush. And I mean, you just you just have to look at which of the I think is the greatest representation of of that statement because i i would say 90 percent of the time you are not getting to use which of the eye and on top of that when you do have a reapability it also requires you to call that house again which may not be the right play with what your hand says at the moment indeed i mean i think one of the reasons that which of the eye has consistently been viewed that way is because that power is so powerful that you know uh, you know, I can count the number. There are certain decks I have where I've dropped Witch of the Eye, and I don't think I've ever gotten to use her, just because mm-hmm. people's automatic reaction was, "I cannot afford to let you play a mimicry and then play that mimicry again immediately," or something yeah. to that effect. Right? Like it's just it's too scary to allow that to live on the table. Which is also like an interesting psychological tactic I've discovered in some decks. Like sometimes if you have a great creature with a great reap ability, you can drop it as a distraction. Hmm. So your opponent is already dealing, like one of my favorite decks, literally that's how I use Witch of the Eye in it. I drop her. I don't care about getting to use her reap ability, but my opponent wastes, you know, resources taking her out when she's not part of my game plan. But they just, they can't afford to let her live because they don't know that. Mm, Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Um, Moving on, I think one of the other aspects that's truly great about a creature is when it confers abilities to your other creatures. So... I'm not huge on boosts to power. So like Panpaka Anga, that's cool. And, you know, Panpaka Jaga, also cool. But for me, I'm thinking about things like, uh, you know, Odoak, 
who is preventing steals from happening. Uh, Senator Brockus, who's allowing you to spend amber that's captured onto your creatures. Tribune Pompidus, who's buffing up your creatures if he's got amber on him. Those are all things, like Worlds Collide Dinos had so many of them. And honestly, to me, those are some of the best abilities because they basically create scenarios in which if you don't deal with this one creature on your opponent's side that they might be able to protect either by keeping them under an elusive or putting them behind a taunt creature or something else like that ultimately you're facing the fact that every single one of your opponent's other creatures on the battle line is getting value and that value can sometimes be enormous it can even be more localized i mean think about like I loved Arms Master Molina for creating a hazardous for the neighbors. I always thought that was so much fun. And even beyond that was Shadow Self, I think, is the original kind of like creating an effect on your creatures that was just wild. Yeah. Let me ask you, Blake, how do you feel about creatures that actually like just provide a power to their neighbors? So, for example, um, what's the name of the fella who's in Shadows in uh, Worlds Collide who on either side of him when uh, it basically gives your uh, guys on either side action steal one? I forget that guy's name. Yeah, it's um, I. OK, the trucker so guy. I have two th- <laughs> two thoughts about it. Did you figure out the name? No, I'm still looking right now. Here, go on with I, your thoughts, and I'll throw it. No, in. I know, I know what it what it is. It's um my my dragon deck has it. Is it Breaker Breaker something? Gosh. Breaker Hill, that's the yes, one. Thank you. Yeah, so Breaker Hill, I think it's so like dependent because there's there's ways that it, it I view it like for that creature specifically. I think it's interesting because it creates a vanilla creature to suddenly have a value. Mm. That's why that's why I I like it in that sense, but I don't put a lot of stock in like relying it as a game plan. But it's something that can create like for example, you drop a Breaker Hill and then you drop a Ronnie next to it. You suddenly make your Ronnie just this recurring steel creature that already did steal. Like I really like it in that sense, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't think it's a necessity for a game plan like it's just an added bonus that can create things that have a one-time playability once they're on the board now they have an extra utility to them other than just a reaper a fight yeah very very true i think that breaker hill being good or bad is like it's it's not quite enough for me to say yes top tier good card but like in the right deck oftentimes it's just providing extra value and that's cool yeah um you know as with everything in keyforge deck dependent indeed Mm-hmm. let's move on a little bit and talk a little bit about what makes a creature bad um i want to stress once again i feel like most creatures aren't great and they aren't terrible they're in the middle somewhere and sometimes they are more towards the good side and sometimes they're more towards the bad side but sometimes creatures are outright bad and i have some examples of what makes a creature bad and my thought process around that and i'd be interested to hear whether or not you think a card is bad based on these blake okay so there is a certain stripe of card in Keyforge that is just either too specific or too finicky or just takes too much to get actual value out of them that suddenly it's just not a good card. Like if you look at Khalifi Dragon, for example, Khalifi Dragon requires you to have seven amber to play it. Now it's got a wicked good fight reap ability, basically gain one and then do five damage to a creature. Plus it's 12, so it's going to stick to the board like crazy. But how often are you actually going to be in a scenario where it's like, I've got seven amber, now I can drop my Khalifi dragon. I'm in Brobnar, a fight house. 
and I'm going to be able to drop this card. And oh, on top of that, I also need to drop a Khalifi Dragon. Like it's an ultimate win more card, but I have never, ever, ever played a game of Keyforge in which the Khalifi Dragon was the difference between winning and losing. Like I was already well on my way to winning or well on my way to losing, but by the time that card hit the board. I honestly think everything you say is is 100% true. I think the interesting thing is that Khalifi Dragon is like a dragon. So it has that appeal of people just like dragons. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think it was designed really well in that sense because it's so cool. But at the same time, it's so like, this is fine, whether or not like you just are happy to have it in your deck and get to see it, whether you play or not is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. But when you do, it feels like a victory in itself, just getting to put it out. So um, I'm okay with that. Um, I would like to see the resurgence of Khalifi Dragon in the future because I think it's a it's a neat card and it, it doesn't really matter one way or the other if it's there or not but it's fun to get it so i wouldn't be mad if we saw khalifi dragon come back in uh in brobnar in the future when it returns sure uh, how about another brobnar example then i told you there's going to be a lot of these let's talk a little bit about igon the terrible igon the terrible's got a fight steel that's his power and he's big he's buff but you can't actually play him until you've had igon the green out and Igon the Green has died, which means that in order to play this creature that is buff, sure, and has an okay power, fight steal, it's not the greatest, you actually have to have gone through so many steps of making sure you got the other card first, you aren't chained by having pulled Igon the Terrible before Igon the Green, etc., etc. It makes Igon the Terrible a bad card simply because it's too finicky. His power is not so good, fight steel, that you're actually going to get a tremendous amount of value out of him because half the time you're not going to be able to play him. Yeah, I'm with you. I, it's 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 like the quintessential card that you want it to be good and it's just bad. Like, I actually don't understand why it needed to have that. Like, why couldn't it just exist on its own as like a maybe a like it is a rare. Like, why couldn't that just exist on its own? Why did it need to have an eye on the green? Like, I can understand from a cool design sort of perspective in that sense, but it totally devalues what is great about that creature. And honestly, that would have made Brobnar. It's it's a good card for World's Clive Brobnar without having that. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they just they should just errata the, the Igon the Terrible. So you can just play it no matter what. Like you don't have to Igon the green it because it would just be such a better situation. I actually think that if he had a steel two as his fight power, that would make him awesome. Like I would live with the crappy, you know, have to play Igon the green. Igon the green has to die, has to be purged. There we go. Getting into Igon the terrible. If his power was a little bit better than fight steel one. Mm -hmm. Or if he had skirmish, you know, steel one. Or something yeah. else. Like just a little bit of extra sauce would have made him work. But as he stands, he's just not good enough to be worth it. And I like Igon. I like the premise, but he's just not a good card. And he's not a good card because it's too difficult to get that value out of him. Um, so this also, I would actually talk about the, the next category for these. Oh, I, I have a couple more examples that I wanted to throw out real quick here. I won't, I won't, begr- uh, uh, I, won't uh, I won't belabor them. Um, Bumblebird is a terrible card. We all know why it's an alpha card and it relies on you already having that built up uh, untamed board. I never get value out of Bumblebird. That's what makes it a bad card. It's just not a good design. It doesn't work the way that I think they expected it to. Same thing with Chonkers. Like Chonkers basically has the ability of, you know, after enemy creatures destroyed fighting Chonkers, double the number of plus one power counters on Chonkers. Chances are that you might get two or three fights and get Chonkers up to being like a two or three fight creature. But also you're going to have wasted time like playing Chonkers as a, you know, two power creature fighting, you know, into other creatures. Like it's just, it's, it's not a tremendous amount of value. 
Basically, yes. Chonkers is a meme creature. Yeah, totally. It's just, it, it bothers me because, you know, the chances of actually getting real value out of Chonkers are so low from the amount of investment that it would require. So mm-hmm. why is he even in the game? Yeah. So moving on, Blake, I know you got some ones for this here. Let's talk about cards that just have no special sauce. We're talking well, either. No, no. I, I want to keep going oh. on the bad thing because oh, of what sure. you're talking about. Because you touched on it very briefly, but I think the, in general, I think the alpha trait in creature cards is actually a miss. Because if you start thinking about all the alpha creatures, like you have Gargantus Scrapper, or more fondly known as Gargantus Crapper, like you said, Bumblebird. I think Glimmer is the only one that actually is a good alpha creature, now that I think about it. There's not a lot, but I think it was a bit of a miss. I I like the Omega idea with creatures and ending your turn after you play it so you can't keep doing things. I think that is a really good design choice. And I understand, obviously, having the alpha and Omega for start and ending. But I think that in the creature side of things, Alpha was a bit of a miss for some things. Like it really was just like it made you go, why? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, I I like some Alpha Omega stuff in principle. On creatures, I don't think it worked very well at all. Um, but like you can understand, though, like Duskwitch had to have an Omega mm-hmm. or else it would be so OP. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the ones where I can go like it works in this context. Um Alpha, like, just they didn't apply it to the right creatures or the creatures that had it on it just weren't very good, like Bumblebird. Like, it's just, just, yeah. It, it was an yeah. experiment. They've kept that dynamic in the game, and I'm glad that Alpha and Omega exist if they want to invoke it to, like, make sure that a card isn't super OP. But uh, I think that they were experimenting with it, and they ended up printing some cards that just weren't very good because of it. Yeah, agreed. So let's get into the no special sauce category. Um, we're talking about creatures that are vanilla or we're talking about creatures that have a bad power. What is a bad power? I'm not just talking about like, oh, that could be better. I'm talking about things that don't make sense. My key example here, going back to Brobnar, is Kulf the Quiet. Kulf the Quiet is a giant creature, six power, with elusive. Why? To what end? I guess I literally think it's like a meme creature, honestly. Like it, it has no reason other than just being like, it, it's almost like for a story that we're not aware of that exists. Yeah. And the thing is, if I look at Kulf, like as a card, as a, you know, just a personality within Keyforge, you're, you're right to call it a meme card. I like Kulf. He's just chilling on a hillside. He's a giant. He's not like the other giants. He's not loud and boisterous. He's just hanging out. But as a card to play, it's like, when am I ever going to get value out of having a six power elusive creature? Unless I can get some captured amber on him and that's going to be dependent. In a vacuum, he's just bad because there's mm-hmm. no real value to having a six power creature with elusive. Six power skirmish. Okay, now we're talking. Yeah, for for me, I I find uh, Draco Preco is one for me that has mm-hmm. the reap ability. Enrage, like enrage your opponents, uh, or as in a house, I think it says or something. Like I just I don't even know it because I I utilize it so infrequently. Like it it has no value to me. I don't care about enraging. I, enrage in general is not something I really care about. Yeah, you know it, it's it's. <laughs> I think of the two things that were introduced, warding and enrage, uh, when, when worlds collide, we know which one actually impacted gameplay for the most part. Yeah. And it was it's warding, true. definitely. Um, yeah. uh, another card that I think just falls into this category is Knuckles Bolton. Um, a three power shadows creature with skirmish and with elusive, like it's just bad to me mostly because three power skirmish. Okay. That's, that's not the worst thing in the world, but it's also mm, probably not going to be the greatest thing in the world either. And the elusive is meaningless. 
Like, why would you ever need to have elusive on a three power shadows creature that has no constant ability or reap ability? Like, to yeah. what end? What would that actually like? What, what does that do? Unless you can get like a, a an upgrade onto him, or otherwise like capture some amber onto him or something. There's just no value there. It's yeah, just it's pretty much the most like, oh, this has hit the board. It's it now poses zero threat to me. I have no feel feel no reason to use any resources against it. When it dies, it dies. Yeah. Now the question of vanilla creatures is an interesting one, Blake. And let me put this idea to you. And it's one that occurred to me when I was writing up my notes for this episode. I actually think there's very few literal vanilla creatures. Mm. I don't think that there's actually a lot of vanilla creatures in Keyforge. Now, there sort of are in Mass Mutation because we've got creatures that have the uh, enhanced mechanic associated with them. And some of those yeah, so, creatures are pretty vanilla. But so I also, guess we have to decide what is the value of an enhancement and how to, sure. like, what is the, the value it puts in your deck versus the creature being on board? All right, so let's talk Infomorph. Is Infomorph- I think that Infomorph is the quintessential card, to be honest, to represent mm. this. Yes, absolutely. To me, I like Infomorph. Infomorph yeah. and multiples provide so much value because he's got that double enhanced draw pip, which means yep. that you're going to be drawing, you know, at least two extra cards over the course of the game, probably a lot more if you can recur an Infomorph or you can play multiple Infomorphs. And he's a four-power creature, which means he's going to stick to the board a little bit. You might get a Reap or a Fight off. I like Infomorph. I think Infomorph is a good card, despite the fact that, aside from that enhanced mechanic, it's pretty vanilla. The funny thing is, though, if it was three-power, it would not be a good card. The four-power is actually the tipping point for it to be a good card. Yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah, I'm um, with you on that. Everything you said is is 100% true. Is It's the draw icon, I think, is the most uh, powerful. It's my favorite enhance. It's the one I want to see. It's the what I'm looking for. Like, how many does it have? Ember pips, I think, go next and then capture for me because getting more ember pips is always a good thing. So do you think Gloriana's attendant is good in that case? A one power creature, two amber in, uh, pip enhancement. I've unfortunately have a bias because I've gotten so many um, decks that have a mutant synergy where it, Gloriana's attendants end up actually having value, but it's it's not like on its own. I would agree it is a little bit more vanilla being a one power. Um, I do like Gloriana's attendant because of things like when you have mutagenic serum, you can now use them to reap out of turn. When you have Torados, they provide card draw. When you have Vault's Blessing, they're providing you Ember. For those reasons, I do like them. If you get a pip on them themselves, Resurgence exists. So there's a lot of support for them, which has created me to have a bit of a bias, not to mention Dark Ember Vault itself being a, a way that makes them have some value. But I think if you just look them on face value on their own, uh, those that two Ember with a one power creature feels kind of bad. Yeah, I would agree with that, especially, too, if you're just, like, looking at a hand, you've got two Gloriana's attendants, and none of the pips show up in that hand. You're like, well, mm-hmm. here's just two bull creatures that I have to throw out that are worthless. Um, here's one that I think will test this theory. How do you feel about Mutagenesis Researcher, Blake? For those that don't remember, Mutagenesis Researcher, three-power star alliance with one of each draw uh, pip. So Amber, Capture, uh, Damage, Damage, and uh, Draw they'll put in your deck that's four pips across all of your cards but a three power creature that has no other ability for me i just pray have auto encoder agreed that's that's it i think that card i think that i wouldn't say it's the worst one because i definitely think shadows got the short end of the stick with Mm -hmm. all those damage pip creatures which i just like 
I could care less about having five damage pips in with Splinter or whatever the other one is. Like, I don't care. Like, like that is just makes me, it almost makes me annoyed. And especially the fact that they, they choose to have a name like Splinter, make it a one power creature and hit up my nostalgic childhood (laughs) dreams of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like I'm low key offended because it looks like Shredder, but it's like a rat, like Splinter. It's like, how dare you FFG? (laughs) Like, that's how I feel off that one. But like, yeah, I'm just, I'm I'm really over the damage pips. Like, I don't care for them. Although it is cool when you get, like, a ton, but it's kind of like those um, extremes. You need the extreme of it, so it becomes, you have so many that now it becomes funny that you have this many. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I think the damage pip one was um, was obviously needed within the confines of the the design, but I could care less about it. Yeah, I like it for pop awards, not for much else. Yeah, and one powered. I'll actually, I will say this. It did suddenly create this situation where one power creature, like Dusk Witches, Restaurant Gunsys, suddenly became like they suck now because if you, because of mass mutations and the damage pips, it's so easy to now pop them off because you're just getting all these. Like if you go against the wrong deck, they their value is, is suddenly like plummeted. Mm-hmm. Totally, 100%. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's on a case-by-case basis with these, but of the ones that have no other power except that they confer pips, you know, I, I think your, your quintessential example of the good version is Infomorph and everything else borders on not great. Mm-hmm. Basically, if they don't have, if they have just pips and they're not doing anything beyond that, they're not great. And they're usually, they're almost always low power. They're, they're just so vanilla it it doesn't make sense. Uh, the the worst part too is if you have them in a house where you have a low creature count for that house, for example, like maybe only have three or four creatures, so you know you're not coming back around for the reap. Most likely, it it's it's really just like whatever. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because there's lots of great creatures that had pips on themselves way back in the day. Going back like Dust Pixie in Coda, yeah. never unhappy to see it. Two pips of amber to play the creature. I didn't care that it was one. I was getting a third of a key out of just playing the creature. It was awesome. Yeah. But I mean, that's kind of Coda in a nutshell. Always great stuff in Coda. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of good cards. Although every once in a while you ran into like a Briar Grumbling or something like that that you weren't super fussy about. Yeah. Last in sort of my categories of things that make things actively bad, when a card has a massive drawback that hampers you. I think Pit Lord is bad. Obviously, there are decks that can get a lot out of Pit Lord. Like uh, ones that allow you to like take you know play them, then get rid of them or blow them up or otherwise like. But just if you just play a pit lord with no way of actually without a plan in mind, I guess suddenly you're just stuck playing dis, and your opponent can run away with the game if you don't have the tools in dis to actually take care of them, or if he comes up late when all of your discards are sitting in your your discard, so to speak. Um, I just think it's a bad design. Um, or at least oh, it's I a love design. pit lord. Really, I'm gonna be honest with you. You think he's a good I love that card. Then? I feel like it's like when I see Pitlord, it's like challenge accepted. Like that's how, that's how I feel when I see it. Like, <laughs> like I, I, you know what it is too. It's the card looks great. Like the art is so good that it makes me want to play it. And the fact that it taunts, like, there's so many things about it that make me really want to play it. But you are right. Like I have fallen into the Pitlord trap because I have this mentality and this fondness for the card. So I, I I would probably have to agree with you. I'm probably one of the few people who take that risk when I shouldn't. But I absolutely love the card. And and there are instances where um I think I think mistakes people make is which I always find so funny is when you drop Pit Lord and the person has to call dis again and you notice they don't play anything out of your hand, 
Anytime you see your opponent not play something from their hand, the biggest mistake you can do is play a card for a pip of ember and you discard something from their from their hand. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that is the worst mistake. If you really want to lock someone out of a game, you literally kill all their creatures, leave pit lord, they're not drawing, and you don't put any creatures on the board and you just start playing stuff out of hand and discarding because they will lose the game. There's yep. no way they're going to reap fast enough with a full hand. They're just going to have to concede. And I think too many people allow when locks are happening to do things that that hurt your opponent's hand and make them discard. And you think there's value in that. When someone is not drawing into cards, you leave their hand alone. Like that is take that to the bank because you'll win more often than not when you have that philosophy. You're absolutely correct. Um, sometimes that drawback is inexplicable. Let me tell you about my least favorite creature in the entire history of Keyforge in one of my favorite houses in all of Keyforge. Let's just talk about NARP for a second. Why does NARP have the drawback NARP's neighbors cannot reap? He's an 8-1 creature. That's not even that good. Yeah, I don't know. It's so weird. He's like a bad it should, design. He should have had an ability himself, like an action ability or something mm-hmm. like that, to back it up. The fact it's just a random passive ability. Like I would love to know the thought process behind that card because it would it really help me understand. And like I'm wondering what happened during testing as well, where no one was like, like, like I'm sure like the players maybe complained. So I'm wondering. I would love to see the the process of how NARP became NARP. When you see like the first draft of NARP and he's got like fight, steal three, you know, yeah. elusive and skirmish. And then they just pared it down. to It was just the drawback left. An awful card. He's the quintessential example to me of if you said what's a bad creature, I would go NARP because there is not nearly enough good about NARP. Just basically his power to offset the fact that he hampers your ability to generate amber. And there are ways that your opponent can completely engineer your board to mess you up and remove your ability to like use reap. Uh, powers and things like that. He stinks. I honestly, when that lead up, I really thought you were going to say Tolis. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I hate Tolis too. I think Tolis is a bad design because if you're not familiar with Tolis, he's a, a card that stuck around for a couple of sets. I think he was at least in in Coda and in uh, AOA. He might have been in in Worlds Collide. He wasn't. Well. It was only Coda and AOA. Okay, good. They smartened up. But basically, the idea was that. Um, if you're uh, if Tolis is on the board, then it's a universal board wide effect where uh, if a creature dies, then your opponent gains one. If you drop Tolis, you're basically telling your opponent next turn that they can fight and get tons and tons of value by destroying your creatures, and then they can kill Tolis before you can get it. So unless you can drop them at the beginning of your turn, you've already got an established disc board. You're playing with fire with it. It's just a bad design. I hate it. So that's kind of our rundown on on what makes creatures good and bad. There's lots of other factors. One of the things that we wanted to talk about is that lots of good creatures can be bad in the context of they just don't synergize with your deck. Maybe it's because they're a fight power creature in a deck that doesn't want to fight. Maybe it's because they're a creature that uh, captures, um, but it doesn't actually have a way for you to hold on to that captured amber. Um, I think Compass Harrisbex is the one that that like on face value seems amazing, but unfortunately, you sometimes get a deck that just has no playabilities, mm-hmm. and then you're suddenly just like, oh, very true. That's actually, the, yeah, that's the that's the one that makes me so sad is that one because there because there are so many good playabilities and stuff that that work in that way, and so it, it just makes me a little sad when 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 you get that card because you don't see it often. So when you so then you suddenly are like, oh, I don't really get to use this, and I, it's my only deck that has it. Sad Mm -hmm. panda. 
Yeah, I think I have one deck with Campus Harrispex and not a whole lot to do with him. So, yeah. real sad. But in the right deck, he's a beast, a must-answer mm-hmm. threat. We are running very, very, very long on this episode because it's a meaty topic. With lots to discuss. We would love to hear your thoughts about it. Hit us up on Twitter. Um, but can't end an episode of Help from Future Self without the titular segment. This one's called... Help, Help from, future, from self. future Self. little lesson from a game that I was playing at lunchtime today. Um, I got carried away with looking at my opponent's board state from the perspective of what they were had just played and not what they had played several turns earlier. And what I mean by that was my opponent had established uh, like a pretty nasty little uh, must deal with threat. Um, but he also had one kind of waiting in the wings uh, in terms of having uh, a Scrivener Favian out. And I forgot about Scrivener Favian because he lured me into the trap of thinking about the card. I don't remember what high value, high threat card he dropped, but it was one of those like, I have to deal with this turn. And I wasted a bunch of resources taking that card off the table. And then the following turn, he just played a ton of capture and stole all my amber because of Favian. And it's because I wasn't paying attention to his actual board state. I was just paying attention to what he did the preceding turn. So... Think about your opponent's turn in the context of what they have going on. Try and actually rank threats. Think about, okay, if I let Favian live, is it going to be more of a potential damage to me than it is over here? Maybe if it's early in the game, you can afford to let Favian live because you got no Amber to steal. But as you're getting further into the game, you're needing to forge those keys. You really have to start thinking about things in terms of how is this going to impact my ability to forge keys and win the game now? Don't just paying attention to what your opponent did last turn. Think about what your opponent already has out on the table and ways that it might impact you and your ability to win. Yeah, good call. Bit of a more complex lesson and a hard one to keep in mind, I think, uh, because there's lots of permutations for it. And of course, you're always just making your best guess at what your opponent might have in hand. You can find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me at scuzzy gruen on instagram and on twitter and on the crucible blake where can they find you what do you got going on you can find me on twitter at boulevard blake now blvd blake same as my tco name and same for twitch and uh right now i'm still working my way through aoa stuff i'm hoping to not have any more disappointments uh last week you may have heard my very strong rant when i opened a deck with one card that had ember control and it was a groak and i was just sick and tired of it but uh, I've moved past that moment. Um, and um, this Saturday, I am doing the AOA opening day tournament. We're starting at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 Eastern, 5 p.m. GMT. And the way this works is you can find it on Twitter. If not, just send me an email, boulevardpaperfight at gmail.com. That's B-L-V-D, paperfight at gmail.com. And if you're interested in playing, and the idea is you take three AOA decks that you've either just opened, never played. Uh, we're going on honor system. There's no prizes. And we're just going to jam a tried-like tournament. So basically, you have three decks. You don't have a batting process. That's the tried-like part of it. And you have to win with two of the three decks in uh, three 35-minute games if necessary. Individually timed games, not an allotment for the whole round. And then if you lose, you can swap out one of your AOA decks and bring in another one. The idea is to get to play some of those AOA decks that have been just purchased or forgotten. So a way to just kind of utilize the collection and have some fun honoring AOA. Sweet. When's that going down? This Saturday, February 6th at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 Eastern, 
5 p.m. GMT. Sweet. All right. We've been running real long, a very lengthy episode. Love to hear your thoughts. Hit us up on Twitter. Until next time, stay forward.